Well, what a joy to be here and be a part of these services. As uh, Jim and Peggy have been ministering about working with God and not working for God, it immediately calls my attention to that encounter that Moses had with God as he's leading the children of Israel up into their spiritual inheritance, into their physical and spiritual inheritance. And the Lord announces to him one day, very simply, you're going to lead them up. You're going to take them up. And I'm going to send my angel before you. You'll have my promises. You'll have my provisions. You'll have my protection. But I ain't going with you. They're hard-hearted. They're stiff-necked. I would destroy. And I'm not going. And immediately Moses said, if you're not going, I'm not going. I will not substitute your protection, your promises, your provision. I will not accept anything but your presence. If you don't go, I'm not going. If we can ever get that mentality, Lord, I'm not going unless I can go with you. I'm working with you and not for you. Amen. Uh, what a blessing to be here and to hear these messages and to rejoice in what God is doing. So I want to, uh, to do a two-part thing here, uh, beginning this morning and then finishing in the service tonight. So if you have your Bible, I want you to turn with me to Second uh, Kings chapter 4, a very uh, familiar miracle in the life of Elisha. We're just going to read several verses because most of you already know the story. Verse 16, 2 Kings chapter 4, verse 16. And he said, about this season, according to the time of life, you shall embrace a son. And she said, not so, my Lord. Thou man of God, do not lie to your handmaiden. Don't raise my hopes. Don't give me false expectations. Don't, don't try to, to bring me out of my hopelessness. I, I, I just Don't lie to me. I don't want false hopes. Then when you get down to verse 26, you know that in the meantime, just as he said, she conceived and brought forth a son. And then the son grew and was taken to its father and working in the field and the head begins to hurt and that son that was birthed died. And she takes the son and puts him on the, the bed of the man of God and locks the door. In effect, buries him. And then in verse 26 we pick up, Run now, I pray thee, to meet her and say unto her, Is it well with you? Is it well with your husband? Is it well with your child? And she answered, It is well. And when she came to the man of God to the hill, she caught him by the feet, but Begahiz came near to thrust her away. And the man of God said, Let her alone, for her soul is vexed within her, and the Lord hath hid it from me and hath not told me. Then she said, did I desire a son of my Lord? Did I not say, do not deceive me? Don't build my hopes up. Then he said to Gehazi, gird up thy loins and take my staff in your hand and go thy way. If you meet any man, salute him not. And if anyone salutes you, answer him not again and lay my staff upon the face of the child. And the mother of the child said, as the Lord liveth and as your soul liveth, I will not leave you. And he arose and followed her. And Gehazi passed on before them and laid the staff upon the face of the child. But there was neither voice nor hearing. Wherefore he went again to meet him and told him, saying, The child is not awaked. And when Elisha was coming to the house, behold, the child was dead and lay upon his bed. 
He went in, therefore, and shut the door upon them twain and prayed unto the Lord. And he went up and lay upon the child and put his mouth upon his mouth and his eyes upon his eyes and his hands upon his hands. And he stretched himself upon the child, and the flesh of the child waxed warm. Then he returned and walked in the house to and fro and went up and stretched himself upon him. And the child sneezed seven times, and the child opened his eyes. And he called Gehazi and said, Call this Unamite. So he called her. And when she was come unto him, he said, Take up your son. Then she went in and fell at his feet and bowed herself to the ground and took up her son and went out. John chapter 11, verse 25. Jesus said unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Verse 38. Jesus, therefore, again groaning in himself. Cometh to the grave. It was a cave and a stone lay upon it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of him that was dead, said unto him, Lord, by this time there's a stench. He's deteriorated. He stinks, for he hath been dead four days. Jesus said unto her, Did not I say unto you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God right now? Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead was laid. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. And I know that thou hearest me always. But because of the people which stand by, I said it, that they may believe that you have sent me. And when he had thus spoken, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he that was dead came forth, bound head and foot with grave clothes, and his face bound with a napkin. Jesus said unto them, Loose him. Let him go. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 10. Paul says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. I want to talk to you about ministry in the 21st century. At a subtitle, I'd simply say raising the dead. We live in a postmodern post-Christian society. Now, do I have to quote all of the statistics to prove that? I hope not. I have pages of them. You know I do my study. And so I have pages of statistics from Barna and other organizations that I can quote that showing that basically there is no difference between society and those who claim Jesus Christ in the church. So that we live in this postmodern, post-Christian society. And this should come as no shock to us. It is certainly no shock to God. It's not a shock to our Lord Jesus Christ. Because the Bible specifically says that we are the generation upon whom the ends of the world has come. That these are the quote-unquote last days. And that the spirit of Antichrist is already at work. In fact, Jesus emphatically states that as his followers, as his church, we will face two distinct things in these last days. First, there will be days of adversity. There will be days of opposition. Jesus says, if they hated me, they will hate you. If they received me, they will receive you. If they loved me, they will love you. But if they have rejected me, they are going to reject you, and you will suffer opposition and adversity. 
In fact, he put it like this. All those that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution, trouble. Amen. In the world, you will have sorrow. In this world, you will have trouble. And so he says that one of the main things that we as his followers in the church in this post-Christian society is facing are days of adversity. The second thing he says is that we, it will be days of the direct attack of the devil. I'm going to deal with that one tonight. But right now, I want to tell you that right now in this generation, we are facing days of adversity. We know that from Matthew 24 and 25. We know it because we've read Luke 17. We've read 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We've read 2 Timothy chapter 3. We've read 1 Timothy chapter 4. We understand that these are days of adversity. And Jesus told us that. In fact, he said that there would first be signs or calamities in culture that in this day we're a part of. He says in Matthew chapter 4, 24, that in this day the sign in the culture would be natural calamity, that there would be famine and pestilence and earthquake in divers places, that it would be a time of nature itself in a sense of convulsion and upheaval. And, and we know that. And then he said there would be calamities in society. That there would be wars and rumors of wars. Nation would rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There would be racial upheaval. Because when he uses these words for nations and kingdoms, he uses the term ethnos. So he said there will come a time when there is ethnos against ethnos. There will be ethnic upheaval. There will be social calamities that are wars and rumors of wars. We, we understand that. In fact, when Jesus described these days, he said, as it was in the days of Noah, as it was in the days of Lot, that's the way it's going to be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. Now, to understand that, you have to go back and read and study Genesis chapter 6. And you have to understand that there was such a cataclysmic sin in the world that God himself breaks in. There was something so out of the original intent of God. Now you can debate the sons of God coming in to the daughters of men and every theologian. The point was there was something so horrendous in culture, so cataclysmic in sin that God feels the need to bring judgment and destruction. In fact, when you read that portion of scripture, he says that there were giants in the land. Men of renown that stood out above everyone else. He goes on to say that the wickedness of man was great. That every imagination of his thought was only evil continually. That violence filled the land. That the earth had corrupted itself. That all flesh was corrupted upon the face of the earth. Those were the things that were happening in culture. And it reads just like what you read in the newspaper and see on television. And then he moves over to uh, the days of Lot. And, and we're talking about Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, what you have to understand is that any time that you deviate from God's original intent, that is perversion. That's what makes something perverted. 
It is a deviation from the original intent and purpose of God. That's what makes homosexuality a perversion. Because is it a deviation from what God originally created and what he originally intended? That's why we proclaim that homosexuality and same-sex marriage is a sin. Because it is a deviation and a perversion of the original intent of God. But so is shacking up. So is promiscuity. So is pornography. And so anything that is a deviation is perverted because it undermines God's original intent and that's what he was doing. But before you say there is no hope, just remember that even in that generation, God never gave up. Because the Bible is explicitly clear that Enoch was prophesying to that generation and he was saying that the Lord is going to come with 10,000 of his saints to execute judgment upon all the ungodliness and not only was Enoch prophesying but Noah was preaching and preparing he was preaching righteousness and preparing an ark to the saving of his family and not only that the Holy Spirit was prodding and provoking and striving with man in order to produce repentance and not only that Abraham was praying and interceding on the mountaintop God never gave up on that generation just like he doesn't give up on this generation well amen and then he said not only are there signs in culture but there are signs in the church there will be, uh, uh, be calamities in the church. False Christ, false prophets, false teachers, evil men and seducers will wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. Because when you study what Jesus said about the days of Noah and Lot to his followers, he never mentioned perversion. If he'd ever wanted to take a text on homosexuality, that was the time. He never mentioned it. Do you know what he said about those days? They were eating and drinking, buying and selling, building and planting, marrying and giving and marrying. You know what that is? Life. None of that is evil. It can all be evil, but none of it was evil. Oh, come on. It, It was life. And what he said was, though they have turned in culture to perversion, In the last days, my church will have the calamity that they will be so involved in the now, so involved in living, so involved in the natural and the material and the temporal, they will forget the eternal. That's the calamity that we face. And when you turn to Jude, he talks about the sins that will come into the church. He says that evil men, men that are sensual, men that live by the flesh, they have not the spirit. They don't want the spirit. They, they speak great swelling words in admiration of men's persons so that they can gain favor. He said they will, they will come into the, they'll slither and warm their way into the church. They'll come through the side door, not the front door. And when they come in, they will seek to bring these things, deception. They will deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. They will turn the grace of God into lasciviousness and license. They will go in the way of Cain so that they will deny the blood sacrifice for sin. And they'll run after the era of Balaam so that they not only try to deceive the church, but they will distract the church with material things. And not only will they seek to, to deceive and to distract the church, but they'll go in the gainsaying of Korah, which is rebellion, and they'll seek to divide the church. 
And if the church is not careful, the result of their actions it will become discouragement. But even then, God's not through with the church because Jude has the remedy. He says, build yourself upon your most holy faith. Go back to the foundations of God's truth. Don't be distracted, but keep on praying in the power of the Holy Spirit and praying until the Holy Spirit comes. And don't be divided. Keep yourself in the love of God. And most of all, don't be discouraged because we're looking for the mercy of our Lord God unto eternal life. Oh, hallelujah. And he says right in the midst of this days of adversity, you know what the church continues to do? They continue to work. They go even to the place of fire. They're moved with compassion to save some. But others they pluck from the fire, hating even the garment that is defiled by the flesh. Don't tell me anymore to quit saying that you love the sinner and hate the sin. If you believe that, then you haven't read the Bible. That's exactly what Jude says. He said you go to the fire and you pluck them having compassion out of the fire. But you hate even the garment that is defiled by the flesh. You love them but you hate their sin. Amen. I'm preaching better than your shout. And so he says we continue to walk. And we continue to worship because we do it with joy. But we continue to watch. We're looking for the Lord to come. And you know what? Even in these days of adversity, we don't worry. You know why? Because He is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before His presence with exceeding great joy. And so He says, this is what... He said there's going to be sins in culture. You know, I, I don't have... To, you, you know that. <laughs> I, I, can, I can tell you that perilous times will come. Men will be lovers of their own self, heady, high-minded, ungodly, incontinent, fierce, unthankful, unholy, disobedient to parents. But you know how he ends all of that? He says they will have a form of God-likeness, but they will deny the power thereof. One man said they will embrace the image of Christ so that they can avoid reproach, but they will not embrace the resurrecting power of Christ so that their lives can be transformed. And so that is what their sins in culture we know of, and now their sins in the church. And we know that. You know, Barna says in his one of his latest surveys that there are four things happening in the church that only seven to eight point nine percent in the church are biblically literate. The rest of the church is biblically illiterate. I learned that in Southwestern in our incoming freshman classes that were raised in parsonages and churches and you give them a basic Bible test, they don't even know the stories, much less the application. And we're raising this generation in the church that do not know what the Bible says. He goes on to say that that, that 40% of churchgoers say that their life has never been changed by attending church. And that three out of five 61% cannot remember a significant new insight that they gained while attending church. But this is the one that kills me. One third of those that say they attend church have never felt the presence of God in church. So that now we have a church that is a, a mile wide, but it's an inch deep. And we're at Revelation 2 and 3 where we are loveless 
and Sardis lifeless. And by the time you get to Laodicea, lukewarm. We are passionless, powerless, and without the presence. We're like Obadiah in the Old Testament in the days of Ahab and Jezebel where that he has taken a hundred of the sons of prophets and he's put 50 in one cave and 50 in the other and he's taking care of their physical needs, protecting them from the anger of Ahab and Jezebel, but at the same time he is the governor, the steward, the manager of Ahab's house. Talk about halted between two opinions. That's where the people are in our church. Holding on to Ahab. There were 450 prophets of Baal. But you remember there were 400 prophets of the groves. Those were prophets of Israel. But they ate at Jezebel's table. They were willing to sacrifice their prophetic ministry for God in order to curry the favor of Jezebel. Oh, well, okay, I got, I got to go. So, so Jesus asked this succinct question then. He said, because it's this days of adversity, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? He really said, will he find the faith? Not only people living by faith, but will he find the faith that was once and for all delivered in to the saints. Now, 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 what we have to understand is none of this caught Jesus by surprise. Because he, his century is just like our century. What he faced is just what we faced. The world into which he came was just like the one we're in. A Roman occupation. A government out of control. I, I, am I bored? I'm, am I bored? Okay. A, a, a government that's out of control. Taxation that men couldn't endure. And Rome was filled with paganism, idolatry. And you know what paganism is? It is the multiplicity of gods without one central moral authority. That's the world, pick and choose, spiritual smorgasbord. He, He faced it, and he faced a church that was absolutely divided. Judaism was split. In many different streams, there, there were the Pharisees, the legalists, who not only believed the word, but added their own traditions to the word. They had a form, they had a ritual, they had a shadow. But there was no reality and no substance. Why did he rip the veil from the top to the bottom? Well, God needed to get out. They never could put God in that box anyway. You know what he was trying to show them? There's nothing behind the veil. The ark was taken out of Jerusalem in Babylonian captivity by Jeremiah. It had never been found and never been brought back. They had a four-inch thick linen veil so that the people couldn't see that the religion was nothing. That it was hollow. That there's no power there. There's no life there. And then they had the Sadducees and they were the liberals. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in miracles. They didn't believe in angels. And then they had the the zealots. They wanted political upheaval. Kind of sounds like today our people are. uh, And not only that, they had the the Herodians who were the hedonists and believed in, in just enjoying all the pleasures of life. And then they had the Essenes. That's kind of like us. The knowing ones. We know the truth. But you know what the Essenes did? They left Jerusalem and went to the Dead Sea wilderness and lived in caves. 
because they didn't want to be contaminated by this ungodly society. Oh, oh well, we don't move to the Dead Sea, but we shut the four doors of our church and we have our holy huddles and we are the knowing ones and we have all the truth, but nobody can get in because we don't want to touch. Hey, well, okay. And Jesus came into that to do something, to resurrect a dead culture, to resurrect a dead church. Because he said, I want you to know who I am. I am the way. I am the truth. I am life. I am the resurrection and I am the life. And if any man lives and believes in me, though he were dead, he will have a resurrection. And if you live and believe in me, you will have resurrection life and resurrection power. And so, yes, he went to the cross. And yes, without the cross and the shedding of blood, there is no remission. And I don't want to diminish the cross. But for the first 300 years of the church, the cross was not the emblem of Christianity. It was the open tomb. Yes, he went to the cross. Yes, he's the propitiation. Yes, he offered up one sacrifice for sins forever. And yes, they buried him and they entombed him. But up from the grave he arose with a mighty triumph for his foes. He arose a victor from the dark domain and he lives forever with his saints to reign. He arose, hallelujah. He destroyed him that had the power of death. He spoiled principality and power and made a show of them openly. And what he gave to the church is the same power. The same spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in you. And if he dwells in you, he also by that same spirit shall quicken, make alive, resurrect your mortal body. And so Paul says, I tell you what I want. I want to know him. But I want to know the power. <laughs> Not of his cross. We've already experienced it. Our names are written. In it. But I want to know him in the power of his resurrection I want the resurrecting power the Holy Spirit so that I can partner with him so that I can be involved because what he's calling us to do in the 21st century is to minister to raise the dead oh I know deceptions here I understand distractions here I understand the enemy's trying to divide us. But we're not discouraged. Paul tells us five times in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and 5 and in Galatians chapter 6, we never lose heart. We don't give up. We don't lose courage. And he gives you five reasons why. He says, we don't lose courage because we are endowed with new strength. The outward man perishes, but the inward man. <laughs> I know once I was young but I can quote David now I'm old but he said even then you'll be endowed with a new strength and though your outward man is deteriorating you've got resurrection and life 
on the inside and your inner man is renewed and strengthened. He said you're going to be endued with the power of the Holy Spirit. You're going to be engrossed with the eternal. And you have, you're encouraged because you have the insurance of a harvest. But most of all, he said the reason we don't discourage in this days of adversity is because you've been entrusted with a ministry. He has given us a ministry. And, Paul, and the message puts it like this in 2 Corinthians 4 and 1. God has so generously let us in on what He is doing. We are not about to throw up our hands and walk off the job just because we run into occasional hard times. He, he has entrusted us with the ministry of resurrecting power. And so just because we live in the days of adversity, we're not going to turn around and throw up our hands and quit and walk off the job and sit down on our behind and retire and say, I can't do this anymore because he has entrusted to you a ministry. And that ministry is the power of the resurrection. He's called you to raise the dead. And so what I did is decided I'd just study all the incidents in the Old and New Testament about raising the dead. I know they're real people. They had real problems. They really died. But there are also principles and examples that we can learn from. And, 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 and you know, the first one is Elijah. You remember? The widow's son that takes him in in the middle of famine. Makes him a cake first and for the next year and a half God performs a daily miracle and stays the oil and stays the meal and and she has a son and now the son dies. And do you remember what she said to Elijah? Have you come to recall my sin? All of a sudden with the death of the child she is entombed and buried and dead under the deadness and the pain of her past life. All of a sudden with the death of that child and his burial, his death uh, she, she finds herself back under the ground entombed and graved because of what she had done in the past. You've come to recall my... I don't know if her sin caused the death of her husband. She's a widow. I don't know what her sin was and you don't either. But the moment that the child died and there's deadness, that deadness becomes the pain of her past life. And she finds herself in the deadness of that pain, buried and tuned under the past of her life. But what you've been called to do is like Elijah. You have the power, the mantle of the Holy Spirit. You know him in the power of his resurrection. And God has allowed you to partner with him to raise those that are under the deadness of their past life, to resurrect that child, to bring life back. Oh, hallelujah. And then by the time you get to Elijah, there's, there's two. The first one I read to you. You know, the lady takes him in and makes a place for him to stay. She recognizes he's a man of God. And he says to his servant, what can we do for him? And she says, don't speak to me before the king. I've got everything I need. And all of a sudden, the servant said, well, she doesn't have a son. She doesn't have an heir. And so Elijah prophesies. And he says, by the natural time of human cycling and conception, you're going to have a son. It's going to happen. He gives us a promise and a prophecy 
Oh, hallelujah. And the provision that only God can give. And just like, you know what she said? Don't build my hopes. I've lived in this hopelessness. I have been in this hopelessness so long, it's like a grave. I am bound and entombed and the dirt has covered me and the seven ton boulder has been rolled in front of this grave and I've lived in this state. Don't you build my hopes. Don't you give me hope. Don't you lie to me. Don't you deceive me. Because I'm already buried in this hopelessness. She has son. The promises, the provisions, the prophecies of the Lord are fulfilled. Year later, she's got a son. He grows. He goes out to the field with his father. His head begins to hurt. The prophet's somewhere else. The boy sits on his mother's laps and dies. She takes him, puts him in the prophet's room, buries him there, shuts the door. Read it. He, she shut the door. She buried him there. And she goes to find the prophet. And when she gets close, Elisha says, go ask her these questions. Is it well with you? Is it well with your husband? Is it well with your son? And she said, it is well. That's not a lie. I'll get back to it in a minute. She did not lie. In fact, what she did was make a declaration of faith. <laughs> there is going to be peace. It's going to be okay. It's going to be... <laughs> Hidden from me. And he says, take my staff, Gehazi. Don't salute anybody. Go with a sense of urgency. Go and let nothing. Prophet's staff didn't work. But he goes. Mouth to mouth, eye to eye, hand to hand, body to body. And the breath of the child. And he takes that child resurrected. You've been called to raise people from the deadness of hopelessness that are buried in tomb with shattered dreams and the prophecies and the promises and the provisions of God have died in their life and they're in tomb with a sense of hopelessness. But you have the power of the resurrecting power of the Son of God to bring them out of the darkness and the death of their hopelessness to give them life. And Elijah died and they entombed him. <laughs> but he had the mantle of Elijah's power. And he had a double portion of the resurrecting power of the Son of God in his body. That spirit that took Elijah to heaven is now resident in Elisha. A double portion of that power. And there comes a pagan army, a little band of soldiers. And they've been in battle against the enemy. And that one soldier is dead. And people without Jesus are dead in trespasses and sins. And he has become a burden to those that are bearing him. Sinful people are a burden to bear. And they got to get rid of him. And they go through an old Hebrew cemetery and they take his body and throw it in an open tomb. But they forget whose tomb it is. It is the tomb of Elisha. And there's still so much resurrecting power in his dead bones that when that dead body hits those dead bones, it leaps right back up to life again. I believe God's going to raise up a generation of Pentecostal people just like you that know Him in the power of the resurrection that are so filled with the Holy Ghost and fire that when dead people that are dead in trespasses and sins bump up against you, they're going to leap right back up to life again. And then quickly you go over into the New Testament and you see the ministry of Jesus. And He said, 
You know who I am? I'm life. All this deadness and culture in the church, I'm life. Not only that, I'm resurrecting power. And if you live and believe in me, you'll not die. You'll have life. And so immediately, what does he do? He starts raising people from the dead. And you know the first one? Oh, you know Mark chapter 4, Jairus' daughter. You know, he would have been there earlier before she died. But he was delayed by a miracle. Oh, hallelujah. I'd like sometime from some of our services to be delayed by a miracle. That God just break, <laughs> get out of the form and the rut and God break in and perform a miracle. I could take a delay like that. I'm not sure about you. but And so by the time he gets with Jairus, there he is. And they say, hey, don't bother him anymore. She's dead. And he said, hey, just believe. It's okay. I know who I am. I'm the resurrection. I'm the life. And when they walk into the bedroom, she's still in bed. There's still color in her cheeks. She is at the exact moment of death. In fact, you know what Jesus said? She's sleeping. Some of you think, oh, that's a rabbit. But some of you think everything God's given you is dead. But I got news for it. It's only sleeping. He's standing there with the re- resurrection. You, know. you, you know what this is? T- the wages of sin is death. They were dead and trespassed. This is private sin. Nobody in the public knows about this. Only those intimate with the person. It's private. She's in the bedroom. There's color in her cheeks. No one even knows she's dead. Do you know that there's a multiplicity of people in the church that are living in secret and presumptuous sins? Nobody knows about their sin. It's private. They still look, oh, we might think they're a little lethargic or apathetic, but they're still coloring their cheek and they come to church and they participate in everything. But underneath, they're dead. Some men's sins are open, the Bible says, and go before them to judgment. Some men's sins follow after. No one knows about them, but they still wind up at the judgment. In fact, the most remarkable scripture in the book of Revelation is the fact when Jesus lists those who are not going to make heaven and he talks about liars and murderers and adulterers and unbelievers. You know how he starts it? The fearful. What? The fearful in the same list with murderers and adulterers and fornicators and liars and the fearful. I asked him about that one day. You know what he said? He said, yeah, because some men's righteousness is only an evil heart restrained by fear. Some men appear to be righteous, but in the secret place of their heart, the only thing that refrains them from doing evil is fear. Boy, that, you guys... They're afraid of the consequences. They're afraid of the judgment of God. They're afraid of the disruption of their family. They're fearful of the consequences. But in their heart of hearts, they still want to do it. They're afraid of the cost. There are people in our church that have color in their cheeks. 
but death in their heart. They are in private, secret, and presumptuous sins. And there are people in our church that are dead because they have become partakers of other men's sins. The Bible says, do not be a partaker with another man's sin. What does that mean? You take no pleasure in the iniquity and the ungodliness of other people. And yet we, we sit in our front room and we watch iniquity and filth being brought into our house. And in the privacy of our own home, we laugh at adultery. And we think homosexuality portrayed in these sitcoms are, are, are funny. We sit in a movie theater and it tells us before we get there, adult content. That is not adult content. That's filth. And adult language. No, that's language I learned as a 10-year-old kid in the gutter. And yet we sit there and partake of that and die. Wonder why we don't feel like getting up Sunday morning and shouting amen. We appear to be alive, but in this private moment, she was dead. But Jesus gently comes in and puts all the unbelievers out. Let them laugh, let them scorn. I got news for you. I am the resurrection. I am the life. And if you live and believe in me, you'll never die. And he just takes her by the hand gently and says, Damsel, I say unto you, arise. And up from the dead she came. That's what God's called you to do. To find them in the privateness of their sin. And to speak resurrecting life and forgiveness. And by the time you get to Luke 7, it's the widow's son. There's nothing private about this. This is public sin. It's open to everybody. He's dead. And he's on his way to the grave. And it's the formal procession. But Jesus is <laughs> Jesus comes by and is moved with compassion. And he stops. He arrests. He breaks in. He confronts. Some people you can't just go in privately. Some people you have to confront with it. Oh, I'm preaching better. You have to confront them with the truth. You have to arrest them in their downward path. You have to stop the procession that's leading them down to the place of entombment. You have to come forth in the power of the resurrection and say, Enough! Oh, hallelujah. And he stops it. And he says, not gently, Young man, come forth. And resurrecting power breaks the sin. And res- so that's what God's called you to do in the 21st century is to go out in the hedges and the highways and the byways and confront them with the truth. Stop their procession that's leading to death and to hell and the grave and say, there's a power that can... And then you get to Lazarus and that's not private and public sin. That's pathetic sin. He's not only dead. He is bound with grave clothes. He is buried and entombed. And he's been that way for a long time. Four days and by this time he is deteriorated and decomposed and he sends out a stench. This is about as pathetic as you can get. But you forget one thing. Jesus, though you may think he's delayed, 
He's coming. And he knows, <laughs> he knows who he is. He is the resurrection and he is the life. And he says, take away the stone. And Martha says, the stench is so bad, Lord, we can't do that. And he said, did not I say unto you that if you would simply exercise faith in who I am, you'd see the glory of God, not in the future, in the days to come, at the resurrection, at the last day, but I'm that power right now. And you'll see my glory right now. Oh, and they rolled back the tomb. And Jesus prayed, and then he cried with that loud voice, Lazarus! come forth and he's resurrected and he comes out hopping in his grave clothes and Jesus said that's not good enough I want you to loose him and to let him go I, I, I tell you when you read that portion of scripture you discover something Jesus loved him Jesus wept and loved him oh how he loved him Oh, how he loves those that are entombed and decomposed and deteriorated and sending forth the stench of their sins. They're bound and entombed and dead, but Jesus still loves them because he loved me. I know he loves them. Oh, hallelujah. And he not only loved them, but he liked him. And he not only liked him, but he loosed him, took the grave clothes off of him. And if you want to see what happened, read the next chapter because they threw a banquet and Jesus was the invited guest and guess who was sitting right to his right? Lazarus, who had been dead, <laughs> but now he's alive. I want to tell you what this next right revival is going to be. It's going to be Jesus loving people, lifing people, loosening them from their bondage and their grave clothes of their sin, taking away the stench of their life. He's going to lift them up into fellowship with Him. He's going to seat them in heavenly places with Christ Jesus. And you know what happened? It's going to be loud because when you come up out of death, and then you, you just get over there. And there's Tabitha, Dorcas. You know what that means? Gazelle, deer. She was quick and agile and fast as a deer. And you know what she did? She did good deeds. She ministered to the body of Christ. She made aprons and, 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 and now she's dead. All that past performance, all those past deeds, all that past ministry seems to be dead. And everyone's standing around the place where she's dead. And they're holding up the testimonies of what she had done. And it looks like the ministry is over. And the past performance is gone. But Peter goes in there and says, Tabitha, arise. <laughs> and he resurrects the past ministries. And the past good deeds. And the past, your ministry is not over. Because you've got resurrecting power. And then Paul's preaching past midnight. Ought to be a lesson to all of us preachers. He preached long. And Eutychus is sitting in the third floor in the window. You know what that is? That's peripheral people. They're on the edge. They're all over in our church. They've been baptized in water. They pay their tithe. They're on the roll. If, if you ask them with their lips, they draw near unto him but their hearts are far from him. They're on the peripheral. If Jesus says anything to them, you know what they say? Uh, have not we preached in your name? Have not we prophesied in your name? Have not we performed in your name and done great miracles? And Jesus said, hey, you've been on the peripheral. I don't know you. You've never had a real vital personal relationship with me and you've never surrendered your life to me. I don't know you. You're dead. 
And as Paul preaches, he falls. And they take him up dead. But the ministry in the 21st century is raising the dead. And immediately Paul speaks the word. And those that were on the peripheral, those that were not involved, those in the church that have appeared to be righteous but are on the outside are raised back to the power of life. And, quick, and then Paul comes into a town and he dies under persecution. They stoned him, buried him under the stones of persecution and opposition. But God raises him up. Oh, you, you are not buried under the persecution and the opposition that you're facing right now wherever you're ministering because the power of the resurrection dwells in you and God's going to raise you and you're going to preach and proclaim the word of God. You're going to continue to minister because that same spirit dwells in you. Now, very quickly, and, I, and I'm, I'm trying is what are the practical principles? How, how do we minister raising the dead in this generation? Well, the first principle is this. You must believe that the Spirit's power in you is greater than the spirit of death that's in the world. Amen, brother. Amen. Yes, amen. You, you've got to declare faith. Yes. You have to believe greater is He that is within me yes. than the spirit of death and destruction and devastation in this world. I know he's the prince of the world. I, I know the whole world lies in the evil one. We'll deal with that tonight. But what to raise the dead, you have to believe that the power of resurrection in you is greater than the power of death that's in this world. And, that, and that's from this story in 2 Kings. He said, is it well with your husband? Is it well with you as well as your son? She said, it is well. She didn't lie. You know what it literally says? There will be peace. That's what it means in the Hebrew. There is peace. There will be peace. Peace is coming. I didn't say it was all right because the son's dead. But I'm telling you, I've come to the prophet. And when he gets through with this situation, it's going to be all right. <laughs> because I, <laughs> I believe that the power of the Spirit of God that's in Elisha is greater than the power of death that is in that lifeless body of my son. I believe that they that be for us are more than they that be for them. I believe that if God be for us, who can be against us? Because Christ died, but God raised him from the grave. I believe He causes us to always triumph in Christ Jesus. I believe He's given you power over all manner of sickness and disease. I believe He's given you power to tread upon serpents and scorpions and nothing by any means shall harm you. I believe He's given you power to walk over lions and young lions and adders and dragons. Oh, hallelujah. I believe the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead inhabits you. And greater is the power of the resurrection that's in you than the power of sin and Satan and death and destruction that's in this world. And that in the last days, He's going to pour out His Spirit upon all flesh. Oh, hallelujah. Secondly, He made proper spiritual preparation. Gird up your loins. Get ready. Some of you need to make some preparation in prayer and fast and get ready to raise the dead. And then He said, go to where the child is. 
Oh, revolutionary. Brother Bob, if they want to come to church, we will be ready to pray for the resurrection in their life. Uh-uh. They're dead. They're bound. They're wrapped in the grave clothes of their sins. They're entombed and buried and entrenched with sin and deteriorated. Go! Gehazi, don't stay here. Go! Go you into all the world. Go to the highways and the byways and you compel them to come in. He called us to become fishers of You know what? Notwithstanding that one stupid video on Facebook, you don't just drive to the lake and the fish jump into your boat. You have a fish finder. And it shows you where they might be and little pictures of them. And you go to where they are. And you prepare the right tackle and you cast the right net. You got to go. If you're going to raise the dead, you've got to go out where they are. They're buried. They're lost. They're dead. They're bound. And they're waiting for somebody to come. Jesus said it like this in John. He said, now that you're full at the meal, you go find the fragments. The broken pieces. The misplaced pieces. The the squashed pieces. The dirty pieces. The hidden pieces. The ones everybody else has forgotten about because they're full. You forget about being full and you go find the fragments. Oh, hallelujah. And so you believe the power, you make preparation, you go to where they are and you have this sense of urgency. That's what bothers me in the church. There's no sense of urgency. If we believe people were going to go to hell, knowing the terror of God, we persuade men. I know it's the love of God that compels us. But knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade if we believe that they're lost. See, most people in church don't believe that. No, everybody's going to go to heaven. It's good, it's good old boy theology. We hear it at every funeral. You know what most people in America believe? That when they stand before God, God's going to push the reset button on their life, the replay. And the video of their life is going to play before God. And if their good deeds outweigh their bad deeds, they get to go to heaven. Not. They're lost. They're on their way to hell. They're dying or dead. They're bound. They're entombed. And you know what he said to Gehazi? Don't get involved in social things. If somebody salutes you, don't even talk to them. Don't don't stop to be engaged in anything in society. There is a sense of urgency. God grant within our hearts again the sense of urgency for the harvest. It's white. It's ready. All he's looking for are laborers. And then there is no substitutes. Substitutes are never accepted when you're having to raise the dead. Gehazi has the prophet's staff. But he doesn't have the prophet's power. He may have the staff of his master, but he doesn't have the mantle of his master. And he brings the staff of the prophet, which is the substitute, and lays it upon the face of that child, and nothing happens. It takes the prophet and the mantle 
of God's spirit that's in his life. Friend, we've tried all these substitutes long enough. Your videos are not going to save people. Your light structure is not going to deliver people that are entombed and dead. Your style of music is not going to save people. Your cute little props and smoke machines are not going to bring people into the kingdom of God. Okay, I know you don't like that, but I'm telling you the truth. It didn't bring you into the kingdom of God and it won't bring them out of the tomb and it won't deliver them from the grave clothes of their destruction and the stench of their sin. Substitutes are not accepted. The only thing that can bring them is the power of the prophet, the mantle of God's spirit. Amen. Well, I, I got it. You know, you know, you've seen the new videos on Facebook that one of the leading... I, could, I don't mind naming it, Hillsong of New York City. It's had a women's conference. You know what their cute little gimmick was? It's going to really minister to people. It's have the naked cowboy on the stage. You know, you, you know the naked cowboy? Some of you, do, you're looking at me. New York City, there's a guy on the street. He wears white briefs and a cowboy hat and boots and a guitar, and he sings, and that's where he makes his living. Hundreds of thousands of dollars. So what's the church going to do? So they have a convention, a women's conference, and you know what they bring on the stage? Their youth pastor in white briefs and a guitar and a cowboy hat and boots, and he's going to pretend to be the naked cowboy. That's really going to deliver people from sin. That's really going to break the bondage and the stents of... I know none of you are going to do that, but we use other things. We think our programs and our personality... No, it is not the prophet's staff. It's the prophet's power. It's the anointing of the Holy Ghost that causes the yoke to be destroyed. Amen. And then you've got to be sensitive. Because it's not high-tech, friend. It's high-touch. You know what Elisha did? He went into that child. Mouth to mouth. Eye to eye. Hand to hand. Body to body. High touch. Building relationships. Not being afraid to touch the dead. You know what somebody said? Jesus was the only man in history who in love touched the leper and didn't die of leprosy, but died at the hand of religious leaders who wouldn't have touched the leper on a bet. So you have to be, you've got to touch them. Okay. And, and quick, they, they have to have supplication. He prayed. And finally, that brings salvation. So I, I, I've come with a simple message. To minister in the 21st century, you have to raise the dead. Because that's the power that's in you. And before you can raise the dead, you have to be resurrected. And I've come to tell you something. He's the resurrection in the life. Not whenever he comes and the dead in Christ are raised and we were. He's the resurrection and the life now. And that if you believe now, you'll see the glory of God. And if you believe right now, you can have a resurrection, a personal resurrection right now. You can have a resurrection from the pain of your past life. 
you can have a resurrection from the failed promises and promises that you believe are dead. You can have a resurrection from past ministry. You can have a resurrection from private sin. You can have a resurrection from public sin. You can have a resurrection from the prophetic situation that you're in. You can have a resurrection from the persecution and the opposition you're under. If you'll believe, you will see the glory of God right now. He's come to resurrect you. And he'll do it gently. Damsel. He'll do it forcefully. Son. Or he'll do it personally. And he'll say, Lazarus. And sometimes he has to say, Bob. Oh, come on. I know. I, I, you know, I glitter. I'm so holy. Yeah. No, I'm Bob. And there's moments he comes by. And shouts at me. And says, I smell that stench, son. You're not going to be able to minister to anybody else until you get out of those grave clothes. And until you get out of the death and the deterioration of your own failures. And Bob, remember who I am. Get a new personal, a resurrection of a new personal revelation. I am the resurrection. I am the life. A new personal resurrection of faith. If you believe, you'll see the... You, you know what I need this morning? I need a resurrection before I'm going to go out there. I got to stand with me right now. Hallelujah. That's what I feel like he wanted me to tell you. That yes, we're in days of adversity. So was he. But he was a resurrection in the life. And he's come to tell you something. You are the resurrection in the life because the same power that was in him is in you. And he wants to give you a personal resurrection. Some of you are buried under the pain of your past life. Some of you used to be in performance and doing deeds that minister to the church. And that seems to be dead. Some of you believe all the promises and the prophecies that God spoke of your life are dead and buried. Some of you are dead under persecution. Some of you, there's a private area of your life. I know colors in your cheek. And you look good. But there's a private area that's dying within you. And he's come into this service to say, you know who I am? I'm here. And I'm the resurrection and the life. And I can roll back the tomb. And I can loose your grave clothes. And I only have to speak your name. And life comes out of death. And hope comes out of hopelessness. Anybody need a resurrection? Maybe you're under the death of pain. I, if you need a personal resurrection, we have time to pray right now. Hallelujah. Amen. Amen. If you want a personal resurrection, it doesn't matter. I've been where you are. I've been bound with grave clothes like some of you. I've been entombed when I wanted to go free. I've stunk when I wanted to have the sweet-smelling fragrance of the Son of God. But he didn't leave me alone. He came to where I was. And he said, take the stone away. Because I'm the resurrection. Son, daughter, Bob, come out. Please, please. So that you can go reach out.